Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 51. First, I want to thank everybody for all the great comments and feedback on episode 50, our landmark episode, and the episode I had with Mike Ritland. Despite, I know, lots of cussing that Mike does in his normal conversation, many of you definitely got the message that he was sharing, which was about understanding our dogs and how to establish or make sure that we're maintaining a great relationship. So I'm glad many of you got that message. Uh, Hopefully you find ways to apply that because in detection dog work, you know, we have to have one of the best understandings. Uh, communication and overall relationship with our dogs to be successful in reading them when they're out there doing detection. We need that, you know, bond, that, like I said, connection, because we all know those dogs read us really, really well. So it's imperative of us as handlers to establish a really good relationship with our dogs and understand what makes them tick, why do they do what they do, and so forth. So that brings me to the topic I've been traveling, as many of you have seen on social media. And the biggest thing I'm seeing and that I'm spending a lot of time doing, which is great, uh, working on fundamentals. You know, name any sport, any athlete who is a professional, what do they do nearly every day or almost every session? They go out and, and practice. They work the fundamentals. If you're a golfer, before they go out on the masters, they go to the driving range and hit golf balls. If it's the NBA playoffs, championship, whatever, they're out there. Michael Jordan was out there practicing free throws. Football, baseball, you name it, every athletic program always does fundamentals. And detection dog work is no different. We have to do the fundamentals. We have to put in the time to always go back and work on simple things as odor recognition, work on something simple as just working on your dog's commitment to odor, working on the indication if whatever it is that you have, doing simple tasks that actually build focus 
and build intensity to those basics because where we all struggle is you know when we go out into that real condition whether it be a trial whether it be a deployment and then all of a sudden we start wondering we're like well my dog i think he's on odor or i think she's on odor i don't know normally the tail wags four times but i only saw it wag three times oh gosh i just don't know i should call it or not oh gosh do i really want to reward because i'm not sure if you have those questions that tells me as a trainer and instructor you don't have enough of the fundamentals and you haven't built enough of that connection understanding of your dog to know when your dog is or is not working odor. So, you know, the the point I'm going to harp on here is don't forget your fundamentals. You don't need to go chasing all this trial prep or all this, you know, cool scenario-based training. Those things are important, but you can't forget your fundamentals and focus on the end result or focus on what your goal is as far as what the scenario would look like if you're a professional dog handler or you know doing your trial prep if you're a competitor you have to always work on your fundamentals and don't forget to do that whether it be depending on your dog weekly you know sometimes maybe twice a week sometimes maybe every other week whatever it is just don't forget to do your fundamentals. So I'll get off that soapbox for right now. I want you guys to always do that. There'll be more posts coming up in social media uh, where I'll be talking about fundamentals and what I do and how I help uh, take these fundamentals and use those fundamentals to identify where problems are at and then how we use those fundamentals to solve those problems. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, speaking of social media, I've made a uh, recently... Uh, a post where I was uh, inviting all of you guys to ask me various detection questions. Uh, it's my first time kind of replying to these questions using a video format. So uh, if you guys like that um, method of me communicating with you all, uh, send me emails or make comments on this uh, podcast or in my social media posts letting me know that uh, you want me to continue with doing that question and answer with the answer being a video response for me. So, on to episode 51. This episode kind of continues with uh, the themes I've been working on throughout the year, which was, you know, how we go about uh, developing dogs for what we need in detection without so much reliance on resources outside North America, let's say. Um, and, And with that, you know, the goal being that we have to understand our breeds better. We have to understand genetics better. So I get to interview a good friend of mine, Mike Suttle, and many of you know him. He puts on some great classes. He has some great genetics with his bloodlines uh, from his Malinois to his Dutch Shepherds to his Labradors and so forth. And we have a great conversation about genetics, about how to raise dogs, so get ready for that. And before I start the episode, I don't want to be remiss and thank, of course, the sponsors. Uh, I want to give a shout out real quick to Spike's Canine Fund. You know, I gave uh, nonprofits on this show a shout out when I can, especially when I see the good work that they're doing for our industry. So on this episode, Spike's Canine Fund, thumbs up to you guys. Keep up the good work. I'm super happy that you guys are out there doing what you do. Of course, 
Michelle Mon and Jenna Gadbury from Psy Canine, home of the TADS, the training aid delivery device. You guys keep putting out good products um, that have been extremely helpful in the search and rescue community, as well as other detection communities with your product that helps protect our training aids. And then, of course, Precision Explosives. Again, I want to thank you guys for uh, being a sponsor of the show. And uh, those who don't know, they have uh, the scent imprint pads. So if you don't have access to real odor material, you can still get the scent imprint pads, which are real odor material, just not in a hazardous way that would cause you to have problems. Uh, They have narcotic and explosive, and they just posted a third-party uh, testing of their products, showing how actually good the product was. So that's, again, hats off to a company that's willing to put themselves under the scrutiny of third parties, not knowing what that answer will be, but just saying, hey, I don't want to be the only voice out here saying this is the best product. I want you know it to be tested and vetted. And if others can do tests on this product and tell me that it's what I know it is, then great. And if it failed, then I'd have to deal with that too. So again, great job, Precision Explosives. Thank you for doing what you do. And everybody, if you're looking for a product to use for your detection dogs, whether it be explosive, narcotics, go check out precisionexplosives.com. They have a lot of products out there for you guys to go use. Uh, and then again, I just want to thank, uh, Bill Gaskins of Integrity Noseworks. He's put on some great webinars with me. Don't worry, everybody. We have more webinars coming. It's been a little slow on the webinar front, just simply because I've been traveling, doing a lot of things and trying to get guests on my schedule and my schedule to match up to theirs has been a little bit more difficult, but we have some webinars coming and I'm going to give you a little teaser before we start this episode. FordK9.com is totally being redone and it will be going live here really shortly. Maybe by the time this episode airs, uh, within 10 days of that or so, give or take, be on the lookout to the social media feed to go check out our new website, which will have online courses, webinars, seminar dates, where I'm going to be at, where it's going to be going on in Las Vegas class dates for all types of classes, whether it be detection dog trainer, basic handler schools, you name it. This new website will be much easier to follow, very easy to sign up, very easy to sign up for our live webinars when we host those. Uh, You can go check out webinars from the past. We will have different uh, membership levels that'll give you access to all webinars from the past. Um, so on and so forth. There's so much new stuff coming out. I can't even, I'm not going to take all the time to try to do this. We'll cover it in little bits and pieces as these episodes come out. And of course on my social media. So without making you guys wait any longer and hopefully not fast forwarding any more than you already did, I want to thank Mike Settle for coming on this show. And now everybody enjoy the episode, Mike Settle, where we talk about genetics, dogs, and all kinds of stuff in between. Enjoy. And one more thing before this episode gets going, I want to let everybody know, uh, if you know Mike Suttle and Logan House Kennels, you know he's out there in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. And we did this episode with him on his phone. There's going to be various times where his phone kind of cuts in and out due to his reception. There's little bits of loss of uh, when he's talking, but 
bear with it because you will get the gist of what he is saying, uh, despite some of the technical difficulties with his cell signal during the interview. So I just want to give you guys fair warning. Uh, be prepared to kind of unfortunately deal with some of the technical difficulties we had due to uh, his cell reception. So it's still great information. You'll love it. So just bear with it and you will definitely understand what he's saying, even though you'll lose him on some of the words he's talking about. All right, there we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. This episode, I get to sit down with a friend of mine who I have admired for a long time, not only on the training aspect, but specifically on breeding of dogs, both in the pointy ear category and the floppy ear category. So that guest is Mike Suttle. Mike from Logan House Kennels. Mike, thank you for coming on to the show. And, uh, you know, I guess just give some of these listeners who may not know who you are a little bit of background of you and, and kind of what you do today. Yeah, okay. Thanks, Darren. I appreciate you bringing me on. Happy to be here. Yeah, so my name is Mike Suttle. I'm, I live in uh, Lewisburg, West Virginia on our farm uh, with our, our kennel here, Logan House Kennels. Uh, we've been training, breeding, training, raising police dogs for uh, close to 30 years now. I, you know, I used to say over 20 years for so long, and, and now I, I was doing the math the other day. I was like, damn, it's actually been 30 years now, so it's been a long time. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we've had some pretty good success with our program, both, you know, in the U.S. and abroad, and I'm pretty happy with what we're producing now pretty consistently. So, um, you know, and it's a pretty good time because it's, it's hard to get dogs overseas right now, so this is a good time to be uh, have figured out what you're looking for and, and figure out how to how to get it because it's harder and harder to go overseas and buy them nowadays. Yeah, no, for sure. And what that's one of the things that drew me to you a couple of years ago when I got my dog Drew from you, uh, a Malinois that you know was a a pup. And you know, my goal at that time was to possibly have this dog get into special operations community and things like that. And the importance of genetics was huge because. As I had seen throughout the years, both in the law enforcement category and then the military special forces category is, you know, if the genetics aren't there, we're going to struggle in some way or another, whether it be a medical issue or environmental issue, things like that. Um, how did you go about, you know, kind of finding your way through this genetic minefield, so to speak? Yeah, I was one of the crazy vendors and brokers. You know, 30 years ago that, you know, 30 years ago, it was, it was quite easy to go over and get good dogs. So most of the vendors were smarter than me and they didn't bother breeding dogs. They just went over and bought them, which honestly is a much more profitable business model. Uh, but I really enjoyed raising puppies. So what we started doing as we were going over there and buying good dogs, you know, I started selecting back the best of all the good dogs that we were able to get and either getting a couple litters out of them before I sold them or selling them with the option to, you know, to get some litters out of them after they were out, you know, working. So, you know, I, I just kind of use my importing business as a way to start to evaluate all of the potential breeding dogs that we were looking for. And a lot of the dogs, you know, you mentioned with that Drew puppy, uh, your goal was to put him in the special operations community. And, and my goal when I'm overseas buying dogs is to buy dogs for that group because their selection standards are the highest. Therefore, if I get a dog that 
it's good enough for them. And for whatever reason, he doesn't work for them. The skies, you know, anybody else in the country will be happy to buy those dogs. So, you know, we're buying the best of the best when, when they were available. And I thought it was kind of foolish to take the best of the best and then place them in places where they were going to be removed from the breeding program, never to be you know, yeah. seen from again. And, and I just, you know, Ritland and I joke about that. Well, it's not a joke. The reality is Ritland and I talk about this in all seriousness quite a bit. You know, that would be the equivalent of you going to the NFL, the NBA, you know, the MMA, you know, mixed martial, whatever, and, and taking all of the most elite performers in their specialty and neutering them, you know, or having mm-hmm. having that vasectomies before they could ever produce. If you did that, if you took all the type double A pipe hitter personalities and pipe hitter temperaments, pipe hitter physiques, and you never allowed any of those individuals to, to reproduce, it wouldn't be many generations before we didn't see as many of those people in the world. And, and that's exactly what we're doing with the dogs. We're taking the best dogs that are available and we're, we're not neutering necessarily, but we kind of, but we're still removing them from the gene pool. We're not allowing them to reproduce themselves. And 40 years ago, my fear was one day when we keep buying the top 10% of all the dogs all over the world, and we put them in, in positions where they're never going to reproduce again. One day, this is going to bite us in the ass. And, and as we said here today, Cameron, that's that day has come. So I, I thought yeah. this years and years ago, and I started, you know, taking the best dogs that we were able to get and reproducing those and keeping the best dogs from that and breeding them back to the other best dogs that we were able to get. And, and, and you know, fast forward 30 years, and, and we've, you know, we've got now 30 years of breeding what I consider to be the best dogs available. Uh, and bringing those back mm-hmm. to the best dogs that we've been able to produce. And, you know, everybody's definition of the best dog is going to be different. But, uh, you know, what I consider to be a good dog is very much in line with what I know you consider to be a good dog and what most of our top-end clients consider to be a good dog. And, you know, that's what we're trying to produce. And, we're, you know, luckily we're now, at a, I think, at a point where we're getting better than average, you know, success in producing that. That's what started it was, was, you know, buying good dogs and then selling them and going, damn, those dogs are never going to be bred with again. Um, so I wanted to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, no, it's, it's super frustrating. Like you just said, you know, you, there's these really, really nice dogs, genetically sound, you know, meet so many great criterias for breeding. And then because of a rule of an agency that says, well, you know, we don't want our guys profiting off of uh, breeding, but at the same time, they're hurting themselves long term because they're preventing the gene pool from having these really good sound dogs to reproduce. And it's not like it's the agency is going to be raising these puppies. If they were to work with breeders such as yourself that have the quality genetics on the, whether it's a female or male, whatever it happens to have, we can reproduce and keep these lines going so that way the gene pool keeps growing and we have good diversity. We can weed out certain issues that may pop up unexpectedly or what have you. Yep. But, you know, it, we, we definitely it's one of those things where we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Absolutely. You said Rillin and I have this discussion. Hey, if you bring this up uh, in the interview with him or did bring it up, uh, I, I guarantee you mm-hmm. that, was, that was the first thing he would have said too. Yeah, absolutely. No, we did. We talked about that. And 
Now, you also have not only done or focused on Mallies and Dutch Shepherds, but you also do labs now. So talk a little bit about the floppy ear side of things and what you've seen and what's going on in that community. Yeah, so fortunately, we're blessed in in that regard. You know, if you're talking about the the pointy-eared dogs, America, it's no secret we are way behind. We're catching up, but we're still overall, we're way behind the Europeans with the production of dual-purpose pointy-eared police that's no secret. Uh, but when it comes to, to Labradors, uh, you know, in my opinion, there is no better better place to get a field trial Labrador than America. And I don't want to offend the, the British labs or the English labs or any of the other people that, that hunt with their dogs. It's my opinion, but there is no better Labrador than the American field trial lab. And fortunately for us, there's no better place to get that than here in America. So there's no shortage mm-hmm. of field trial labs. I didn't start breeding them because there wasn't enough of them. I started breeding them because, one, the Malawas are harder to get, and two, the the programs that have traditionally preferred Malawas, like Customs, for example, they're starting to, and I've seen this for the last several years, their, their requests for proposals that used to be exclusively pointy-eared dogs are now shifting towards sporting breeds. You see the same thing at Lackland mm-hmm. with the DOD. You see that with a lot of government agencies and even a lot of police departments that I used to set, have a 20-year history of selling dogs to a lot of police departments that even when they were buying detector dogs, they would still prefer single-purpose Malawas. And now all of their detector dogs' requests are for sporting breeds, mostly labs. Mm-hmm. And even some of the guys that used to buy only dual-purpose dogs are now doing away with their dual purpose program and only buying labs you couple that in with the new new programs that are starting up that never had dogs before but the new programs are exclusively for uh, explosive detection for, for for example or maybe now in today's environment maybe COVID 19 detection regardless most of the new dog programs are not based around a dog's ability to bite it's about his ability to do other things mostly using his nose there's no breed on the planet, in my opinion, better suited for using his nose than a Labrador. If you'd asked me 20 years ago to grab my best five detector dogs, uh, they would have all been German Shepherds or Malinois. Um, if you, mm-hmm. you come in my kennel today and say, show me your best five detector dogs, all five of them are going to be Labradors. Um, I still have good Malinois that hunt well, but the truth is, as I dove deeper into the lab program, uh, I let my set my ego aside and said, you know what? I can't produce a Malinois that hunts as good as a good hunting lab, and I and I'm not embarrassed by that because we're dealing with Malinois that have been bred for a reasonably short period of time to use their nose. I mean, they started as herding breeds, right? When you talk yeah. about field trial labs, since the beginning of the Labrador, they've been bred to use their noses. So uh, there's there's no reason for me to pretend I can produce Malinois consistently i can get one or two maybe here and there but i can't get a litter of malinois that will hunt as consistently as a litter of my labradors and i'm okay with that uh, so the reason yeah. i started breeding labs is one when you find good field trial labs nobody wants to sell them they're out there there's a lot of them out there but the really good ones are going to cost you 20 grand otherwise the, the guy who's trialing them isn't going to sell them um and mm. the other thing is there's just such a huge need, and all of the Malinois clients are now shifting to labs. So it made sense for us to start a lab being program. Um, you know, labs have their shortfalls, just like Malinois do. Uh, so we start mm-hmm. start selecting Labradors that have less of those shortfalls without sacrificing any of the field trial stuff. And, you know, again, I, I've only been breeding labs about five years now. 
but there are very good Labrador breeders who have been breeding labs for 40 years that are now coming to me to buy a Labrador. So I'm kind of, you know, I, I take that as, as a compliment and I feel like we're heading in the right direction there. For sure. And you brought up a good point. So one of the things, I just did an interview with Bart Rogers from Auburn and uh, a guy named Craig Craig Koshik that has a podcast on sporting breeds. And Craig studies and has studied the various sporting breeds from like basically inception through time, you know, all the different countries. And he brought up some really awesome points, which was, you know, the paint jobs, let's just say a Labrador, but that doesn't tell you the story. What does the genetics tell you? Is this a pointing lab? Was this a field? Tra- you know, and he got, he went into the different details of what some of these dogs, whether it be pointers or or springers, that he goes depends on where you get them. You know, some are flushers, some are point. You know, so there are significant differences, and you go into it with a point with a uh, a paint job kind of mentality. Oh, it's a breed. It's a Labrador. It's going to do what I want. And like you said, a Labrador over here to a Labrador over there is extremely different. And you know, then you get into the whole show side of things. But we kind of kept it mostly the conversation into the working side of things. So, what's your th- thoughts on you know how do people kind of weed through the different types of um, aspects of a breed like a Labrador that has multiple functions? But if they don't really know um, necessarily what the gene pool to that lab was they don't know necessarily or, or why it's doing what it's doing why this lab is a crazy freak and loves to run around everywhere versus the lab that's more methodical and what kind of comes into that i don't know much about the pointing lab bloodlines um i know that for me what matters with with my labs or with any of my working dogs really uh is you know first and foremost is hunt drive but i'll be honest with you very seldom, if I'm testing a Labrador, do I worry about his hunt drive. Uh, I mean, I always test it, of course, but if I'm driving to look at a Malinois, you know, there's a whole list of things that's worried, of worries that I have in my head about, you know, am I wasting my time? Is the dog going to be environmentally, is going to be a train wreck? Is he going to be too reactive? Is he going to be too unstable? You know, those are all things that worry me with a Malinois. And there are things that worry me when I'm going to look at a lab that are in the back of my mind. Like, I got to make sure I chest this very, very heavily. But his ability to hunt in a field is very seldom anything that I'm worried about. Of course, I'll test it. Yeah. But, you know, if I'm buying proven, you know, or if I'm buying labs from proven hunting lines, I assume they're going to hunt. I also, I also assume that they may not have a ton of exposure inside and their grandparents and great grandparents may also not have had a ton of exposure inside. So I assume that I'm going to have to test them pretty heavy environmentally. And I, like I said, I will test their hunt, but I'm not too worried about the hunt. So I guess to answer your question, and maybe I misunderstood your question, but when I'm looking at a lab, if I'm looking at one to, to use as a potential breeding program, there's a specific type that I'm looking for, a pedigree to go with what I know already works with what I have. But if I'm looking for a to buy a lab, I'm happy to test any lab, regardless of his pedigree. But first and foremost, I want to make sure he hunts, and I got to make sure he's got good, solid environmental nerves. And for me, if he has those two things, I'm interested in him. Whether he's a pointing lab or even a show lab, if if he will do that. But sure. my experience is he may not be as, as you know successful if he is a show line dog for that. Not for the type of insurance yeah. that you and I would look for, and, and for the type of insurance sure. because that's another thing. Those big, long legged 
field trial dogs, man, they, they've got a motor and they can go and go and go. Those little short, squatty, bulldog-looking, you know, show show dogs, yeah. even if they have the drive and the enthusiasm, they typically don't have the endurance. Yeah. No, he was, and it was cool because, like, he brought up some of the things that we might, as handlers, deal with or trainers deal with. He can say, well, that comes from that background. So let's say you have that more... Long, like you say, like the long leaded spastic one that just loves just to get out and run. He goes, well, it wants to get out and run because it's you know that's part of what it was bred to go do. And even though this other one that looks exactly the same does something different, what's well, because the genetics behind it gear it to do that, which was pretty cool sure. to look at it from that point of view. Because you know I've been there, especially now over the past let's say a couple years, I had been doing more with pointers. And I was seeing that and I was seeing where there, I had some pointers that just want to get out and all they want to do is run around, run around, run around. Yeah. And then I had other ones that were more, more kind of like more that when they get an odor would stalk it. And it was just supernatural. And he goes, yeah, because you're looking at it as it's a pointer and it always should just do this. He goes, but there's pointing breeds that the, from the pointers that they've selected to be flushers. So they run a whole lot more and they just cast you know, air scent constantly versus being a little bit more methodical naturally. And he goes, now what's even worse is because you know the U.S. demand has you know, gone through a lot of Labradors and they've opened the door to these other breeds. Well, now they're going after these other breeds. And then like you mentioned, some of the vendors from around the world go, Oh, okay. You like this breed. Now we'll start producing a lot of this. And he goes, and without forethought, there's all these different crosses starting to happen. Yeah. All with a goal of having a, let's say a pointer who wants to play with a ball versus a pointer that was naturally already bred to be more about the bird. Sure. He goes, so then there's all these different crosses happening. And then you start seeing these weird anomalies that just crop up or genetic issues such as health and environmental things that, you know, weren't there. He goes, so it's just one of these things that becomes a knee jerk reaction based on an economic decision. Right. You know, oh, Americans want pointers? No problem. Grab as many pointers as we can, start breeding them, and let's just see what we get. Yeah. And he said, you know, without knowing if breeders were grabbing it for, he goes, because there's very strict rules in Germany for certain pointers, they must pass these things. But if you were to grab one, as if, a, if a, a vendor team was driving around Europe just grabbing dogs, and that was one of the ones they could buy, and then they bring it back and breed it with a, a bitch that's from a different type of background, he goes, it, it starts becoming a roll of the dice, which you get. He goes, even though we're all looking for, like you mentioned, the core values, environmentally sound, good, obviously the hunting should be natural, but the ability to possess, retrieve, all these things that we want in a good detection dog, he goes, you can get all over the place, depending, you know? And a lot of these agencies, you know, have brand new handlers. And their their guy who was a handler for 8, 10, 15 years goes, son, just get yourself a lab. That's all you need. And then off they go. And it, it could, depends on where they're at, what they get. So it was, it was a good conversation to kind of looking at the genetics and the history of why we are doing what we're doing, but to have some thought like you're doing, you're breeding with a purpose and the purpose to do those things that you, uh, the goals that you had in mind that, you know, like you said, you, you get through certain things in your breeding program. You're like, okay, that worked, that didn't. Okay, let's get, and then you start having your generations and you go, yep, this is a good proven pair and this pair has produced and then you start fine tuning that as a process and that's something that, like you said, 
you know, it's not as common here as it's been in Europe, but like you said, on the sporting breeds, I definitely feel you're right. We, you know, especially on the hunting side, those guys are really, really good at kind of honing in on those kind of qualities because like his comment was back at the, you know, circling it back around. He's like, you're not going to have a field trial guy using a pointer to do his field trial. You know, as far as retrieve sure. goes, right. they go into it with a very specific thing. He goes, and detection needs to be looked at the same way. If you are a search and rescue handler and your thing is a uh, search and, you know, it's, it's a find and bark, then you want the dogs that are genetically, you know, bred to bark when they find something. That makes your life already one step easier. So... It was it was a good you know informative conversation on that, but that's what like you said he brings it back to things like like you're doing with labs that makes it better. So circling it back to this point, now let's talk about what what are some of the issues that we see with labs today, or what's some of the things that you would say that we have to look for to be careful of. So for me, the two biggest issues that I see across the board, and it's not it's no fault of the breeders that produce them because it's not important for the. You know, if, if I'm talking about field trial breeders, two things that they don't give a shit about, honestly, is whether or not the dog will tug with anything and whether or not he'll walk up, you know, underneath a Blackhawk helicopter or whether he'll walk up open graded stairs or whether he'll crash through a warehouse with, you know, air compressors and welders. You know, he doesn't care about any of that. And so because he doesn't care about it, uh, maybe he has dogs that will do it naturally. Maybe he doesn't. It's not something he tests for, not something he puts as, as a, of any value in his breeding program. So the end result may be he gets a dog that's perfect for him. You know, he hunts great. He handles well. He can take pressure. You know, he retrieves the hand naturally. Those are all things that are important to those guys. But And I need the same things, but I also need a dog that likes to tug, and I also need a dog that can walk into damn building with me because if he won't do that, the rest of that is, is moot. So when I'm looking at labs, those are things that I'm always cautious about. You know, he probably isn't going to want to tug, and he probably or he very well may have some issues environmentally unless if he's a kennel dog. You know, I mean, genetically, he may have those issues. If he's been conditioned to get past it because he was raised in a house as a puppy, that, that probably will have taken care of itself. But, you know, if he was raised by a bird dog handler, I can assure you he's not, it's not been encouraged to tug. And he probably hasn't been really tested environmentally other than maybe an aluminum John boat. <laughs> you know, that's about the only thing he's ever had to climb in and, and, and set on. But, yeah, you know, so those are the things that I, like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel with labs. I've been breeding Malawas for 30 years, and I, and I do some experimenting and outcrossing and line breeding and even inbreeding occasionally, and then an outcross. And I do some experimenting with Labrador, I mean, with Malawas, because I've got 30 years of experience there, and, I, and I'm pretty comfortable in that area. You know, Having only bred labs for five years, it'd be foolish for me to go out and try to reinvent the wheel. If I look at very successful sure. breeders like like Pat Nolan, dear friend of mine, awesome guy, awesome mm-hmm. breeder, great guy. I can't say enough good things about Pat. You know, I'm, one of my stud dogs here now came from Pat, and it'd be foolish for me to try to reinvent. You know, I I, I sat down for I've known Pat for uh, at least 15 years now, I guess, and I talked to, to Pat many times about is Labradors. And if you notice, none of the lab breeders do any, any type line breeding at all. They kind of, they kind of steer away from that on purpose. And the Malawi guys are, are all about it. Um, so there's a part of me that because I know it works with the Malawas, there's a part of me that wants to start doing some line breeding and, and, and I will eventually probably, but, but there's also a very, you know, now that I'm, I'm much older and a little wiser, 
I'm smart enough now to say maybe I should take the advice of guys who've been breeding labs for 40, 50 years. Maybe I should take their advice and, and, and say, okay, if they don't line breed, there's a reason for that. Maybe I shouldn't start experimenting with that just yet either. So, you know, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel with Labradors. What I am trying to do is take bloodlines that I know work, dogs that I know work, from breeders that I know can produce the type of dog I want, and then I'm taking those dogs, and from that pool, I'm selecting the ones that are the most natural hard biters with good tugging behavior, and they're the most natural environmental, uh, you know, idiots. It'll crash through anything, jump and climb on anything, the type of dog that we look for when we're testing a, 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 a Malinois. I, I like, you know, to find labs that come from good, solid, proven lines, and from that group, select the ones from that group that, that bite and tug and jump and climb and crash through environmental stuff. And that's kind of where, I, where I'm steering my program at, at, at the five-year mark. Sure. Now, you brought up something earlier, too. You, know, you picked the lab because of, like they said, a lot of the qualities that you liked and what you've seen in detection dogs. And there's a lot of, obviously, significant parts of Europe that use spaniels for detection. So what would you say, because I'm, I'm now knee-deep in some spaniels myself, so yeah. I'm just super curious for you, what do you see from your point of view? What is the difference? Why are the spaniels very popular in Europe, but not as popular here in the States? And I would say, I'll give you the given, the machismo side of us and law enforcement wanting not this cute, cuddly little dog to get out of the car to go do a thing. We want something with a little bit more you know, ass to it, so to speak. What's been the difference between the two sides just from being across an ocean with each other? Yeah, I'll be honest with you. I don't know. I think that's probably the biggest reason. It's not just Europe either. Like I've done several seminars. I've been to Australia five or six times to teaching over there, um, and Australia has far more Springers uh, or, or Spaniel-type dogs in their detector programs than they have Labradors, and they're equally successful. As a matter of fact, I I would dare say, I don't, I, don't, I don't know much about Springers. I mean, I've trained a handful, and I've had a few in and out of my kennel, and I've sold them, but I, you know, that represents, of all the breeds that I, if I list all the breeds that I've bought through the business to resell... Springers is probably mm-hmm. the smallest number of dogs on that list. So I have sure. less experience with Springers than I do the other breeds. Of course, the ones that I've selected to buy were good dogs. I didn't, you know, I didn't have any. That, and those dogs were hammers, man. I loved them. I love their personalities. Yeah. I love their size. I love their intensity. I love everything about them. What I don't love yeah. about them is 90% of the people that call me don't call me asking for springers. If they're looking for if they're looking for detector dogs, <laughs> exactly. they're looking for Labradors. And, and that's yep. for the same reason. I, Cameron, today, right now as we speak, I probably have, not counting puppies, I probably have 40 dogs in my kennel, adult dogs. Today, damn near that many puppies, although next week a lot of those puppies are leaving. But there's not a single German Shepherd in my kennel. And it's not because I don't like mm-hmm. to breed, and it's not because they're not a capable dog. It's because my clients have stopped asking me for German Shepherds. And that's the whole reason yep. that I don't have 10 Springers in my kennel today because my detector dog guys are not asking me for Springers. And it ain't because they don't work. It's because they don't know about them or they have, yeah. they're, they're, not, they're not ready yet to do away. Even if they had to go from a, a big hammer and dutchy dual-purpose dog and now the chief says you got to have a, a, a floppy-eared dog, they still like a 75-pound jet black, big block-headed lab 
that's at least once, you know what I mean? Like I used to race sport bikes and then I got a cruiser and one day I may get a full on Harley, but I'm not ready for that yet. And that's, that's kind of where they're at. I think like they had to get rid of the Dutchie. They still want the big block headed lap. Maybe one day they'll, they'll be mentally mature enough and, and ready to say, Hey, you know what? I don't mind handling a little 30 pound Springer. I'm okay with that. Um, no, it, it, you're. I would say you're absolutely right in that sense because you know I'm out here in Vegas and Vegas Metro has significant. I mean, almost all of their, not every single one, but it, I would say majority of their single purpose dogs are Springers or working cockers. And same with yeah. the neighboring agencies in this area. And that was because it, it came about. You know, they're one of the few agencies that rolls their dog handlers. Not all of them, but a majority of them roll with two dogs. They have their Mal or Dutchie as their patrol dog, and then their single purpose detection dog is generally their Springer or Springer type mix. Yep. And they love them out here. You know, and you know, I just like you said, I kind of fell into them recently, and holy cow. I've quickly becoming my favorite breed because yeah. of almost everything you mentioned about them. Yeah, they're more heat tolerant. They take up less room in your car. Yes. They take up less room in your kennel. Even if they bark, they don't make as much noise. They don't bark as loud. Nope. You know what I mean? Like there's, <laughs> exactly. they don't cost as much to eat. They don't have as many health problems. There's a lot of reasons that they that they're. Great oh to man, a lot of reasons they're good choice. They're so fun to work. I'll put them up against any of the ones I've had. You know, any kind of dogs, labs, mouths, shepherds. Sure. They they do the job. Absolutely. So, but I, I I also love now that I'm older and wiser. It's like you said too. Is like I sit back and go, man. A this is a lot less work. B they come genetically really sound. Yeah. Um, can you? It's like any breed though. Can you find crappy ones? Of course you can. But as a whole, I've been. It's. You know, and I hate saying this on a podcast because everybody's going to hear it, but it's an untapped resource. And yeah. as soon as, you know, more of us here in the States figure this out, whether it be the police canine handler, search and rescue groups, uh, obviously, and I'm going to put this out there now and I'm going to regret it. But if I was in that nose work competition group, holy crap, this is the dog I would use. Yeah. They, they're phenomenal at it, you know. But again, I, I've got a really good breeder who's not too far from me. He comes from the hunting world. Everything he does is all the hunting background. Him and his dad have been doing it for a lot of years. They've got it dialed in. Um, so it's it's a great another little great resource. But doing exactly what you're doing is why they they do what they do. And in this case, it's working cockers and the uh, springers. So uh, I'm I I was just curious because like I you know as I've traveled around like just like you, I'm like man. Everybody's into these these springers, and then I finally got my hands on them, and then I now I'm snatching them up. I've almost become we joke around here at the the facility is you know we've turned into springer hoarders. So because yeah. <laughs> every time I see a good one, I'm like crap, take it. You know now we've reached a point of okay, we got to stop because what we've learned is there's a lot of good ones, and these guys are really good at what they're doing breeding wise. So there's always good ones available. We just have to now manage how often we get. <laughs> because yeah. I can't end up with you know twenty five springers running around, even though they do take up a lot less space than all the big dogs I've had here over the years. But but now that this brings it into the equation of okay, so we've got good genetics, we've got good dogs that can produce. Um, we have the end users. We have you know very educated uh, trainers who know what they're doing. But where we lack, and you brought this up a minute ago, a lot of people shy away from raising dogs, you know, due to profitability sake. And I would say 
a breeder, it is you know, obviously not super profitable for the, a breeder to raise. But as we kind of transition out here in the dog world, and especially in law enforcement with so many cops now leaving the field saying, I've had enough, this is, you know, enough's enough as far as being able to, to do my job effectively and, and not worry about, you know, everybody Monday morning quarterbacking things and putting my life or my family in, in jeopardy. I, I know a lot of guys are getting out and they're starting to get into their, their side hustle. You know, they're getting into their jobs. Um, and one of those I'm starting to see is, People with that knew what it was like to be a handler or be that end user now playing a role as a raiser, going to people like you, going, okay, I want to select, you know, one or two, whatever it is, and then they're going to raise that because there, there's that fills that gap that we have here in the states, which is people who can raise dogs properly to then move them on to the either the client directly or to a vendor, just like we've been doing in for Europe, you know, so. What would you say is one of the biggest, because I know you get hassled a lot for certain ways that you raise the dogs because the a perception aspect of it, but what are the important aspects of raising that dog uh, from, from that puppy to that adolescent or young adult uh, to become that working dog? Oh man, you, you brought up, you brought up a subject. You're going to, you're going to make me say something that may come back and bite me. Yeah. <laughs> I want to no, tell you, you, know, you, you talked about you talked about police officers that decided they no longer want to be police officers, and God love them. I, I couldn't do it right now. That's the worst time in the world to be a police officer, and I totally get mm-hmm. why they're. I mean, it's a, it's a damn shame, but I totally get why they're they're bailing out. But my my experience, and I know some great handlers, man, that are fantastic, have had successful careers, and have been able to handle really nice dogs that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to handle really strong, powerful mm-hmm. dog, you know, the great handlers. But one thing that scares me the most is when I sell a good puppy to someone who has handled seven dogs throughout his successful career, but never raised a puppy. That scares the hell yeah. out of me because what they know is, you know, seven times in my career, I was handed the lease to a two-year-old pipe hitter, hammer and dog, mm-hmm. And, and I was able to, 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 you know, whip his ass into shape and get him on the street, and we were a successful team. And I did that seven times, so I know what I'm doing. But, you know, you could interview seven NASCAR drivers who may be able to drive the wheels off a car and have no idea how to even change the oil in it. There's a, it's a, complete, yeah. a complete different job. Handling, you know, handling an adult dog is completely different than taking a puppy bringing him up through that stage through the adolescent stage and preparing him to be able to be, to pass the selection test that the last dog he was handed had passed and that's what scares me is because they, they there's a, it's a complete different mindset complete different finesse oh, it's like just totally sure. different you know um and i think the so so to answer your question you know what's what's the biggest hurdle the biggest hurdle is patience and and you know and being willing to say He's a puppy. This is normal puppy behavior versus, well, my last mm-hmm. seven, seven, two year old dogs didn't, didn't balk at this. So this puppy's a washout because he balked at this. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the no, frustrating sure. part is, is having, having people that, that are willing to understand that not all puppies, regardless of how, how much potential they have, not all puppies are going to crash through an experience that your two year old dog crashed through without having some, ad, some, some, some age appropriate reactions. You know, when I was, 
when I was four years old and or five, whatever, five, six years old, and my dad said, they might go down in the cellar and get me a can of green beans. You know, when I was five years old, going down those dark, cold basement stairs into the cellar was a stressful deal for me. Like, I didn't like that shit at all. Um, because mm-hmm. I was afraid of what might be down there waiting for me as a five-year-old. And coming out, I'd come out of the basement, turn the lights off, shut the basement door, and then dread the 18 steps up out of that basement. There were times I remember running up those stairs as fast as I could before something could grab me when I was five. Yeah. You know, at, yep. at 48, I'm not so scared to go down in the basement anymore. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and I can't run up the stairs even if I wanted to now. So, you know, I'm going to walk up and if someone's going to get me, he's just going to get me. But I'm ready to fight him if, that, if, it, if that's required. You know, and that's kind of, the, yeah. that's what I see with puppies. You know, you see a puppy that gives me an age-appropriate response. I just think back, you know, when I was five, that may have scared me too. But when he's three, absolutely. He, when he's three, he ain't going to be scared of it. As long as I introduce it to him correctly and intelligently and I help him through it. But I don't know that everybody yeah. sees it like that. I think they say, well, my seven-year-old dog wasn't afraid of that. You shouldn't be afraid of that at four months old either. I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button on your screen when the dog makes a find. And it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, As with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? 
Ford K9 now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordcanine.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordK9.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalK9.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel and has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com, or like I said, go to fordk9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. You bring up the, the important point, which is patience. And mixed with that patience is the knowledge to understand the process of raising puppies is there's these different phases of development in these puppies that aren't going to be anything like you saw when you had an adult dog or like you said you know someone who may have raised a pet at first and now are out there doing some type of detection you know they weren't at that point when they're raising their puppy, thinking about doing anything, it just kind of happened to them. They're like, oh, look at this. I got a dog that can do that. And, and again, as we start developing programs to raise you know, dogs to become detection dogs, and I'm going to say detection, just because going down the, the part that like you just mentioned a minute ago with the dual purpose type dogs, that is way harder. I, I definitely agree. Definitely not for any kind of novice. I mean, both aren't really necessary for novices, but... With a detection dog, um, we have you know there are certain things they're a little bit more forgiving, um, but the important part is understanding 
dog development, understanding eight weeks to 16 weeks, 16 weeks to 24 weeks and so forth. And the benchmarks that you kind of, they're loose, but also the important part of just let the dog be a dog. Yeah. Absolutely. That's the biggest thing. Mm-hmm. They want to rush. It's a it's yeah. a race to this finish line, and and that's sometimes the worst thing. I'll get people that are like, oh, I want to put odor on this eight-week-old dog. And I'm like, but why? You don't have to. Sure. Let it let it develop a little bit longer. There's there's some cool stuff we can do that lays some seeds for, for detection. I'm all about it. We, we will definitely do some things, but you're still going to be putting the work in later on too. Yeah. So Pat Nolan made a good comment. Like he, he had done his own study by – I mean, starting at basically just after birth, you know, imprinting the dogs to that, I think it was like raspberry leaves or whatever, raspberry tea leaves or something along that line. And then discovering, you know, at a year mark, they still didn't know, they they weren't like super great with it. At the time he goes, I thought it would work. You know, I, I thought, you know, doing this, he goes, so what I discovered was I'm just good letting the dog be a dog growing up. You know, the biggest thing was the environmental aspect that he had to focus on because, you know, and you and I both know this. I mean, those puppies change so much just within weeks of time that you can either really mess it up or you can really help it and grow. And that's um, that's kind of that artwork slash experience aspect that I guess guys like yourself or me and some of the other ones we got to keep sharing that process of understanding how to navigate that minefield of puppy to adult. Because my joke is they're a lot like fine China. They look really nice, but they break easy. Yeah, for sure. So you have to go through it. And, and again, there is no perfect step one, step two, step three. You, you have to adapt to that little dog in front of you. And, what worked with dog one just doesn't work well with dog four, you know, and they could be in the same litter. So, but you, if you have enough tools in that toolbox and you kind of know what your benchmarks are, like, okay, by this time frame, I should be seeing this. Um, you're, you're on the right track, but you have to be patient and you have to be forgiving and you have to be willing to do those, those little things. And back to the business side of it, it's time investment. You know, which is why for guys like you or me, we're already invested in it anyway. That's how I always tell people. I'm like, they're like, well, you're not going to make as much money. I'm like, I'm getting paid the same. So I'd, I'd rather be like Apple. I want complete quality control from start to finish. I want to know, I, I put it in, I did it. This is what it does. I know everything about it. So when I finally put it with its handler, here's everything I can tell you about the dog. There isn't anything I don't know versus... You know, what I've struggled with on imports is, you know, I get nice dogs, but there's always something. They're either just shit monsters in a crate or they lack any type of you know, decorum inside of anything. Um, you know, all those things that kind of make people's life miserable at the end of the day, or they're just, you know, incessant barkers, or there's that weird quirk in some kind of building, you know. And, and of course, then as the vendor, you're standing there going, oh, Go look at that. Never saw that in that few weeks I've had him before you got him. Like you, I love the process of taking this dog, putting things into it, building it, putting my fingerprint on it. And then for me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in that, that middle stage. I'm not a breeder. Uh, I don't really have the time to put in the breeding aspect, but I'm playing that role of quasi raiser to vendor, but I'm a much smaller vendor. I'm not pushing out 30, 40 dogs a year or more. I'm more like, 20 or under and and even that's a stretch because I want that high end quality because 
I know what it's like. I mean, me and you both know when we were the the guys working the dog to the end of the leash, you know, I wanted to have as much information as I possibly could. I wanted to be really good with my dog, but sometimes it took a year or so to get through all that because there was still so much to be learned because this dog has already had three or four handlers yeah, or owners or whatever it was. So, you know, you're, you're going through all those layers of training or training errors, training mistakes, and then creating my own training errors and training mistakes on top of what the poor dog came to me with. And like you said, or they come in, there's, there's such pipe hitters that we had no clue how to manage it. So you know, I, I look at that's why I like watching the stuff that you're doing with the puppies, and why me and you gravitate to a lot of the same things is because it's a process, and people have to really learn the process. And the, the major component is patience. Now, with that said, one of the coolest things, of course, that me and you are exactly the same on is the use of markers, and how what a great communication system that is for dogs so i'll let you talk a little bit about that because i know you do your classes on that but what's the value and why is this such a good system to use when communicating a dog whether it's detection or anything else oh man i i use i use a marker exclusively in detection now um and i didn't used to you know and that's that's the hard part for me to to, to relay to a lot of our clients you know i we the, when we teach these classes I'd say we get a 50-50 split between old-school law enforcement guys, which would be people my age now, you know. I mean, people that have been handlers for, you know, say 20 years or 15 to 20 years, but their their process is, you know, has been learned from their mentor who is who, who we could all agree would be considered an old-school handler. And that's what, mm-hmm. you know, he's who taught them, so that's what they know. So they had no experience with marker training. And then, so that's, that represents 50% of the students in our classes. And then when they come here mm-hmm. and the first thing we do, we play a trainer's game with a clicker. Uh, I mean, you know, that's the first thing that we, the first hand something that we do after, you know, a couple hours of lecture on the first day. And then the, we immediately go out after lunch and we start doing nothing but clicker training with chickens. And that's such a novel idea for them. If I, I know those guys, if I give them a clicker and a puppy, they're still going to find a way to correct that puppy. They're still going to come back. They're still going to you know, pop them with a leash. Or they're going to do something that I don't want them to mm-hmm. do. And they're not going to do it to piss me off. They're going to do it because they just can't help themselves. But when I give them a chicken and there's no leash and there's no collar and the only thing they have is a clicker taped to a food cup, you know, now that forces them yep. to think outside the box and they be completely open-minded whether it's going to be or not. But the options are you make it fun and interesting for the chicken or the table when the session is done and you don't get any behavior out of them. So, you know, that's, uh, that really helps me explain it to, or, you know, kind of, you know, give them a really good, quick visual on, on the value of marker training. Cause we're taking chickens and getting them to do things that they can't get their dogs to do. Um, you know, so that's, that's, that's pretty cool for, for, you know, for them to see. And then, I've got their attention and now they're like, Holy shit, there is something to this. Now I'm interested in paying attention for the rest of the week because I have a feeling during the first two hours, they're marginally interested at best because the understanding of the impression that the clicker training is for, you know, for little to have poodles. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a very powerful tool. You know, the, the, the clarity, especially in detection, you know, you know, if if you're going to start to reward your dog from, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like to work a dog 
on leash unless it's necessary. Like I really like my dogs, whether I'm doing field work, or whatever. I like my dogs to be very independent and to work away from me and, and truly be odor detection dogs and not as Don Blair calls them odor confirmation dogs, meaning mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not blocking and tickling and check here, check here, check here. And then when I actually touch the source of the odor, the dog confirms, yeah, dad, you found the odor. I confirm. That's an odor confirmation dog. If that's the case, I don't need a dog at all. I want my dog to be an independent detection dog without me being in the room. I, you know, I just had some guys from the Army up here the last three days. They just left this morning, and we had that very conversation. You know, those guys are doing detection work now from, you know, hundreds of yards away and watching it either from a drone or from a camera strapped to their wrist. They don't have the luxury of being on a six-foot lease saying, check here, check here, check here. So, yeah. You know, let's let's now that's that's outside of the of of you know the reality of most going detection work. But let's just go back and say you're doing detection group in a, in, in a classroom, but not on a six foot leash. Let the dog be independent, and it doesn't matter how accurate you are or how good your timing is. You're not going to be able to deliver the toy at the right place at the right time, no matter how good you are at precisely the right the right time. And that's the beauty of the of the clicker is it it makes the timing damn near perfect if your aim is otherwise bad. Um, and I do this example in the classroom where I'll give I, I used to do it with a copper pipe one example of that, and now I do it with a rolled towel <laughs> because I'm going to have these guys throw a rolled towel from 15 feet and hit a, a target on the wall at precisely the right time. You know, which means you have to really account mm-hmm. for a lot of things there. And nobody can do it. Of course. Oh, yeah. That's the point of the exercise. Not a single person can do that. But every single one of them can do it with a clicker. Yep. Right? So, and again, that just kind of helps you understand, yes, I don't have to deliver a toy. It's impossible for me to deliver a toy across the field, across the room, and have it land exactly where I want it at exactly the right time. But I can absolutely do that with a marker whether it's a clicker or whistle or whatever yep. you're using. I can do that with a marker. I can't do it with a toy. Um, and that really helps people understand. And then, you know, we do use baby puppies in our classes, and, and they respond beautifully to a clicker. Um, so, you know, even if I'm just doing a three-day class, I can really have people understanding the value of marker training by the end of the day on Sunday, whether they believe me on Friday morning or not. Oh yeah, that's one of the things that you know I I share because the the number one argument that comes into play every single time is the dog's leaving odor to get the toy. The dog must have the yeah. So what is your typical uh, statement to those that come to you with that? Just so I can you can somebody else can say something different than I'm always saying the same thing. So what do you, what do you say when they typically throw that one at you? Where's your dog at right now as we speak? He's in a crate, right? Mm-hmm. He's somewhere. He's not mm-hmm. sitting on odor right now. If you trained yesterday, he left odor, right? Like, he left odor. He, mm-hmm. Whether you give him a toy at source and you walk him away from odor, or you mark the behavior at source and he comes springing away from odor to get, the, to get an indirect reward, regardless, he's going to leave odor. Whether you yeah. drag him away or he leaves to get a toy or whatever, that that's the dumbest argument. Almost everybody that gives me that argument, when I see their dog, their dog has a fraction of a commitment to odor that the dog that I'm going to show you will will have. So yeah, I hear that same shit too. It drives me nuts, man. I the people that give me that argument, 
have never can can show me a dog that's better in detection than the dog that I'm about to show them. So I, I don't really, oh, you know, it, I just don't give a shit about. I, I'm so tired of hearing that argument. I don't even entertain. <laughs> no, I know. I hear it. And, and the the funny part is, so I'll lead them down the path of, okay, do you understand what classical conditioning is? You know, Pavlov and Bell. And they're like, oh yeah, 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 okay. So I said, so do you do marker training? They're like, oh, no, no, I don't do that. I said, okay, so when your dog, when you tell your dog no or fooey or whatever it is, nine, whatever, what does your dog expect to have happen to them after you say that? Oh, a correction probably. Okay, so that's actually technically a marker, except I'm going to show you how to do this in a positive way. In, you know, you're going to say something that now means toy, a reward. And you're able to do that at precise moments in time where just like you said a second ago, you're never going to be able to deliver a reward there. So one of the bigger dog vendors in the States has gone through my class before and he's like, Cameron, you know, you know how many dogs I've seen on marker that just run to odor and run back to the handler because they expect the thing there. And I'm like, yeah, you know how many dogs I've seen look at a box and stare at the handler, look at the box and and go back and forth with her head. You can't, you can't, that's a training so I, issue, man. That's not that's not the system. That's the that's the person using the system. You got it. That's what I said. So I said to him, "Shitty training is shitty training. So if it's shitty training in marker or shitty training at, at direct, then shitty training is what the problem is, not the not the method. You know, obviously the use of of a bridge or marker is used in almost every other type of animal training out there in the world. You got it. So why are we so resistant to it? Well, we're resistant to it because of a stigma or, like you said, it's looked at as pet training or what have you, versus looking at it as like, how can I be really effective and very clear about what I want from the dog? So then the other argument that I've seen frequently from the sport world is, you don't know what you're marking for. You, if you were to mark, how do you know they were smelling the not the cardboard box, but the you know all the different things? And I'm like, I control that, and I do that by testing. And not only that, but how the hell do you know you're delivering the toy at the right? You know, when he's smelling the right thing. If that's your argument, that's a stupid argument too. Oh uh, yeah, dude, you nerf there with me, man. <laughs> oh yeah, no. So that's so that's a frequent one, and it's easy to dispel a lot of these um, you know arguments because, like you said. There are arguments that were based on information that we had in the 90s. And then, like you just said earlier, too, what was carried over from that trainer who trained them to what they regurgitate. So it's that master-apprentice relationship versus applying a more data science-based approach where you're like testing things to see, okay, is this true or not true? Let's find out. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's not about being right or wrong. And this is a, something I've always taken from Brian Hare uh, on the science side of things. It's about finding what the truth is. Is this true or not? I don't know. Let's test it. Let's see what we get at, get out of this. And you know, the frustration that some go through when we start talking about science is, oh, well, this week it's that. And next week it's that. Well, that's, that is the beauty of science. Sometimes it evolves and that's what makes us better. Uh, that's how we make adjustments so that way we are, in this case, when we're talking about dogs, how can we be efficient at raising them, efficient at communicating and training to them without doing stuff just simply based off of, well, we've just done that for a long time. And we, again, we both know and agree Dogs are, you know, each dog is different. Dogs in the same litter are different. You know, we can't just go by 
that breed or that paint job and say, well, it's going to be like this. That's super general. And there might be some correlation between that, but just like us, you know, you know, we're, we're both white males, nearly the exact same age, but the way we are raised and how we do things, how we view things can be very different. But if you looked at it, oh, I just need a white guy. Okay, well, then there's this. Yeah, right. But somebody from a different ethnicity or background who's the same age of us is going to do something very different. So we have to look at dogs just like we look at ourselves, which is we're individuals. I can't. There's you cannot put me on a basketball court and I'm gonna, I ain't gonna do shit. I'm the worst guy out there. Yeah. So even though I'm tall, but I'm nope. I I will suck. So you 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 have to you know look at these individualistic traits of a dog and see does this dog. Can it do what I what I hope to do or what I would need it to do? And then uh, a friend of mine, Simon Prince, had a great quote, which is, "Get the dog you need, not the dog you want." Especially if you're doing something specific like detection, yeah, you know, because you, you got to find that dog that fits that need versus trying to make this dog that you want do what you think it what you want to do. Yeah, and then I'll give you a different layer to add to that in the future, uh, just just to help people understand that even when you get the dog you need you're still Mm -hmm. only going to get the behaviors that you reinforce you know you're never correct you should never get the dog you want and then you should understand that you're never going to get what you want in training either you're only going to get what you reinforce and if your timing sucks you're not ever going to get and and your criteria sucks and your rate of reinforcement sucks you're never going to get what you want you're only going to get what you reinforce and only the best trainers are able to reinforce really close to what it is they actually want. I'll give you mm-hmm. I, my opinion. And, and you know, I, I hope this isn't a reflection of your podcast, but in my opinion, <laughs> dog trainers are the worst there are in the animal training industry. Every other yeah. animal trainer is better than dog trainers, but, but it doesn't have to be mm-hmm. the case. No, not all dog trainers True. are terrible, but I mean, I guess what I should say is, the dog training industry, more so than any other animal training industry, the dog training industry allows for shitty trainers to still be successful. Sure. You know, shitty, shitty zoo trainers can't be successful. Shitty Hollywood animal trainers can't be successful. Shitty falconers can be successful. Shitty trainers at SeaWorld get fired. You know what I mean? But, but dog, trainers, yeah. dog trainers can make $100,000 a year and be terrible at their job. Yep. I see it. I see it every day. I see it all the time. We can learn so much from the animal training industry if we open our minds and and look at what zoo trainers are doing. What Hollywood, tra- you know, if you can train a hummingbird today to do a, a, a very, you know, complex chain of behaviors, and you can train a grizzly bear tomorrow to do something equally complex but completely different, you know, and then you can go train a dolphin and you can train a silverback gorilla to do something else. Or you can take, I'll give you a, a perfect, you know, we did a seminar a couple years ago in, in uh, Australia, and one of the ladies that was at, it was, uh, one of the ladies that was at the, uh, the place that was hosting us, uh, her husband was one of the trainers at the Taronga Zoo in Sydney. And she, okay. she organized, you know, they were all excited that I was coming over, and the guys at Taronga Zoo wanted me to come over and work with them. I was excited to learn from them, more so than I think, I was excited that they were excited to learn from me. What made it more, what made it more complicated is Bob Bailey was there literally two weeks before me 
teaching at the trunk. Oh, wow. So I was like, how the hell am I going to walk in here and teach these guys anything <laughs> when the man himself was here two weeks ago, right? But No kidding. One of the things that I saw there was about, I don't know, I'd be, I'd be guessing at the weight, but I'm going to say 900 to 1,100 pound big male uh, California sea lion was was at this at the zoo and he was wild because they estimated he was like five six years old big adult male he was he was badly injured in a fight uh, off the coast of northern california they you know they collected him up sent him to, to the tarunga zoo in sydney where they were going to rehab uh to try to save his eye he'd only been there for a couple weeks and this big ass animal has already been trained to come out of his enclosure lie flat on his back in the in the uh you know in the training area here and let the doctors scrape scar tissue off his eye. The caveat is he can't blink because it messes the vets up. So they had to train him to lay there quietly and not blink mm. his eye while they went in there with scalpels and shit and poked around and scraped scar tissue off his eye. And they did it with a clicker wow. and a bucket of fish. And he's only been there for a couple <laughs> weeks. This animal is not hardwired to do this, right? No. And you can't put a prong collar on him and strap an e-collar to him and, and kick him in the rib cage with your Dutch wooden shoes and get him to comply, right? This has got to be his idea. Mm-hmm. That's just one example. You know, we can't teach our Malinois to out a Kong ball in 12 years, but but they can teach this They can teach this sea lion who came to them two weeks ago as a five-year-old wild animal. They can teach him to come out of his enclosure, lie down on his back, and let me poke him in the, in the eyeball with a sharp object and not blink and not bite me. His canines are twice <laughs> as big as any dog you've ever seen. You know that's that just that, oh yeah that that's a real quick snapshot into the world of of animal training outside of the canine world, um, you know, and it's just we can learn a lot from from the guys that are teaching you know falconry or the guys at Sea World, oh, the yeah. guys that are teaching these twelve hundred pound animals to walk up and 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 stick a body part through the cage so we can draw blood or so we can give them a vaccination. You know that's there's a lot animal training that we as dog trainers haven't discovered yet and i make it my point to be as open-minded about all those other aspects of animal training as i can and then if you take that beauty of this is you know and i'll wrap this up the beauty of that is the same methods that we use on our dog we can never use on any of those other animals but Mm -hmm. the same methods that we can use on the hummingbirds and the gorillas and everything we can use those methods on our dogs now that gives us the upper hand because we have a training model that has been genetically tried to work for us for, for general hundreds and hundreds of years. We are actually in a position where we should be able to get way more out of our training model than any of those other people can because we have what we know works with dogs and what we know works with all the other animals that we can apply to our dogs. Those other trainers don't have that luxury. They can't use what we used on our dogs with their, you know, with their Komodo dragon. Mm-hmm. One more quick story and it helps drive this point home. Same zoo. Yeah. The guy, the husband, the lady who we did the seminar with, he was in charge of their reptiles, like their hot reptiles at the zoo, you know, all their snakes. And he also was working with the young Komodo dragon. Now, Komodo dragons, for those of you that don't know, they're not, you know, they're, they're very, to- they're, their saliva is very, very toxic. But when they bite their prey, mm-hmm. it's a, like an anticoagulant and their prey will bleed to death. 
They don't have to be fast. They have great noses, so they brought, you know, in the words of this, of, of Stu, the zookeeper here, and maybe he's listening to this and he'll get a chuckle out of this. You know, in his own words, they bite the zebra, the zebra, whatever, whatever they bite, and they, they tear a pretty good chunk out of them and the saliva that doesn't let them stop bleeding. And then even if it's two days later, they track this zebra down because he is bleeding and he will eventually bleed to death, and then they find him and they eat him. <laughs> so... With that being the case, the zookeepers that are responsible for cleaning these enclosures need to know where this dude is at when they walk into their enclosure. They don't want him hiding in mm-hmm. their legs. So the enclosure simply going, you know, remedial perch. You know, we're going to send him over here to a touch pad so we can keep eyes on him. It's very, very easy for us to teach our dogs to do. It's quite easy for alligators to teach their go and land on this person and hang out different because they're strapped with the other problem of you know the zoo's always this right so they're they they train in, in in the public's eye most of the time so it's easy to say okay well every time you feed them there's a problem with for it to be real easy we can 100 repetitions per training session and we can two training sessions a day and, and just small bits of food, we can get, you know, a thousand repetitions a week if we needed to. We could get that behavior very quickly. The problem is he's feeding a rat, right? You know, the zoo, they have, they have one of their, as natural as, as they would eat in the wild, as, as is within reason. So they're feeding him a rat. But because there's 10-year-old kids there who don't understand when you hack a rat into 50 small pieces, he has to feed him a whole rat. And the, and the, the, the Komodo dragon adolescent here only eats like twice a week, maybe less. So he gets two opportunities per week for reinforcement, right? Two rats every seven days. Um, whereas I can take a hot dog and, and give him 50 repetitions in 30 seconds. This guy gets one or two repetitions every seven to 10 days. So it, he has to make those things count. They won't let him hack the rat. Oh, yeah. But, because I was like, well, let's the rat, turn it into 50 chunks of a rat. We can't do that. The the public doesn't like, you know, the, the zookeepers, the zoo doesn't want to do that because the public, that's not the they want to see. We see a whole freeze-dried rat. I'm like, oh, that's, I see, that's a problem. Like, that, that complicates things. But yet, with his two repetitions, he keeps the dragon doing what a lot of dog trainers can't get their dogs to do after you know, three months of training. Where, where they get yep, thousands yep. of repetitions a week and they still can't achieve it. This guy achieves it with two repetitions a week. So again, it just puts into perspective the important timing criteria, you know, and in this case, a very rate of reinforcement, but only reinforces, you know, the behavior that are very important to him, are very valuable to him. And so he does get one once with very limited you know reinforcement scheduling so whereas you know we have the luxury of dealing with animals that, that they're hardwired to be to be there for us tomorrow no matter how cool and, and archaic our methods are and we still can't get them to do what what those other guys get their animals to do it's anyway i, I know i probably spent way too long on that topic but it's near and dear to my heart and and I think dog trainers could be so much better if they were more open-minded to the science of, you know, 
of offering conditioning and the science of marker training. Yeah, no, and you, you said you you made a great point because, like you said, they work with much harder conditions, and then that in that in that story there, a much lower rate of reinforcement. Yeah. With something that will kill you, <laughs> if this is done wrong, a much less awkward animal, you know. Yeah, and, and to be able to do that, and we still struggle to get a dog to sit and stay, right? You know, and I, I'm really enjoying seeing our, our, our industry change, which is a good thing. Uh, seeing things, you know, whether it be podcasts like this or you know posts like on, on your Facebook group and things like that, where people can go and learn more. And, you know, I made my post uh, just the other day, you know, if you look at the world and, and all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you you have to go out there, increase your toolbox, no matter what it is, but the more tools you have, you're going to be able to do something like you brought up, go from training this type of dog and its personality to this type of dog and its personality. And that's one of the things I've loved about you know being involved in that sport dog world with detection is when I first saw that, seeing what people were getting out of their dogs in detection that I wouldn't even thought we could do. And it and it opened up my ability as a trainer to go. Oh, look! If we can do this with this little Pomeranian, and it's pretty accurate at finding stuff, I know I can do even better with a dog that comes to the table with these certain motivations, drives, and genetics that uh, make my life easier as a trainer. So, yeah, we have to step out of our comfort box. We have to take in other forms of training and just because some national level organization has always done it this way and we're you know you know master trainers what have you and I've been doing this 30 something years well okay <laughs> that's relative to your experience and your time yeah <laughs> what about this and, and that's the part we have to it's not making a dig it's just stating the reality of there might be more information out there that will help you work this dog than just what this system has always done and you've picked dogs specifically for your system. So if, and again, if that dog doesn't fit that system, it really doesn't always make it a bad dog. It might mean the system needs an adjustment and an an evolution. So the next thing is I want to say is how, because you give such good information, you have awesome classes, awesome seminars, and you and I need to do one sometime together when we can link it up. Um, But how do people get a hold of you? How do they find you? And how do they find, you know, potential seminars or classes that you're doing? Yeah, so Facebook is is probably the best platform uh, to to go for that. We've got a website, and I'll be honest with you, man, I haven't updated it in years. (laughs) <laughs> and, and I know that, for, you know, for the clients that try to reach me on the phone, I know it's frustrating, but it is like I had to drive 30 minutes to, to, to wait for your phone call tonight because I don't have cell service on my farm. And, and wow. I, I don't, you know, I mean, I know it's kind of a cop out when people say, you know, can you give me a call to discuss the dog? And I'm like, I, I can't because I, I can't drop everything I'm doing and drive 30 minutes just to be able to have a five-minute conversation. I mean, I, I, I wish I could, mm-hmm. but I can't. So the best way to reach us is Facebook uh, or, or the website, uh, but but the website's mm-hmm. pretty outdated, and, and, and it will at least give you my phone number and, and an email address where you can you can get a hold of me. But com. the Facebook page is simply Logan Haas Kennels. 
is my phone number. I do receive texts, but it doesn't come in real time. You send me a text, and if I stumble upon <laughs> one square foot of, of acreage on, on my farm, that text may come in that you sent 30 minutes ago. I'll reply, and then an hour from now it may out. But um, that's, yep. the point. That's, the, that's the beauty of living on a big, wide-open farm in the mountains of West Virginia. Yeah, you know, the service sucks out here. Oh yeah, no, and you on your Facebook page, one of the best things you have is you have that Facebook group for puppies, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a one-time fee. It's it's really cheap. the The detection series is the detection group page is twenty five dollars for unlimited lifetime access, um, and the puppy series is fifty dollars. Same thing, unlimited lifetime access, and it's you know that's a live, always adding videos, and all you know it's always growing. Um, as long as I don't get kicked off Facebook, which has been a bit of concern occasionally, <laughs> but, um, even if I do, Megan, Megan's a lot more, uh, I don't know, politically correct. I guess she's a lot more intelligent about not opening her mouth and pissing people off. So she'll always be on Facebook. <laughs> so, so you should have access to that forever, but if not, we'll, we'll, I do have those videos. So if that, if something goes south with Facebook, we will have, we'll find another platform and you'll be added to that. But. Yeah, that's a pretty good resource, and I, I like to think that it's pretty good information. Oh, absolutely. I think I, I've heard great things about it I, at, at this time. I, I heard about it probably a few months ago. It's because I'm always, like you, inundated with other, other stuff, and yeah. everybody loves it. Everybody loves it. So, um, yeah, those that are listening, you know, I will put a link to the to his Facebook page on there, and you guys should be able to, from that point, find the group that matches what you're looking for. Sign up for that group and get a lot of good information at a very, very reasonable, fair price. So, Mike, I know you took some time, like you said, to get out there and, and do this phone call. We made it through pretty good. With it was only uh, a, l- a little bit during your story there, we got a little choppy. But uh, overall, it, you know, really, really thankful that you got to come out uh, to make this phone call and uh, do this podcast with me. And like I said, you know, uh, to all the listeners, Mike and I will make an effort at some point because I get it all the time. I'm sure you must get it too. Hey, you and Cameron should do something. Yeah. So, sure. or, you know, yeah, you and Mike should always do something together. So we'll we'll definitely make a concerted effort. Both of us do travel, and we're tied up with a lot of stuff. But I I, I hear the the messages from people. I know Mike does. So thank you for this. This is step one, and we'll get to step two at some point. Uh, again, thank you for your time for coming on here. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to be here. I, I appreciate you uh, you asking me to come on. I understand you're going to Virginia tomorrow, right, to do a seminar out you there? You got it. He, yep, yeah, I will be over at uh, at uh, Aaron's place there at Ridgeside. Yeah, a couple of good friends of mine are going to be out there to, to sit in and, and, and learn from you. I wish I could go. I just don't have the time right now, man. we got so much going on here, but oh, I'm I get sure it. it'll be a, I know. Sure it'll be a great I... seminar. And hopefully I can learn from my buddies who are going to come back and tell me what you taught them. Yeah, no, it, it should be a good group. I we're we're a little strapped on time on that one, but uh, I will get the information out. And if you guys have questions, and it's a lot of the listeners too, uh, the the cognition stuff. This is the seminar we're talking about. It's the canine cognition. If you guys are ever interested, there's going to be uh, more seminars around the United States. Uh, we're actually going to be doing uh, canine cognition instructor courses here too. So that way, it's not just my happy butt flying all over the United States doing this. Uh, this information is really really good stuff, and I. Want want more people out there uh, sharing it and showing it to others. So I'm taking it to the next level 
and we'll be doing uh, canine cognition instructor classes. So I will put people through what I had to go through at Duke from with Brian Hare there uh, <laughs> the, to get to that that level. But uh, no, I hope you get some information on it. And uh, for everybody listening, thank you for tuning in and downloading this podcast. Please rate, uh, subscribe to this podcast. And thank you for listening to Canine's Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. Thank you.